Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. God, I decrease so that you may increase. Lord, I become less so that you can become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way tonight, Lord, that your people would not hear me or see me, but they would hear you, God, and see you. I pray, Lord, that you would be the centerpiece of all that we do, Lord, tonight. I pray, God, that you would help me, Lord, to to point the way to, to you and to what brings you glory. I pray that you would give your people listening ears and hearts that are receptive, Lord, minds that are alert. I pray, God, that we would hear and see your word and that we would understand. We thank you for this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the last time that we were together, we, uh, we were talking about the, the biblical marks of, or the marks of a biblical church. We are continuing our study of the essentials of the Christian faith. And we've learned a, a few things in the past two weeks, haven't we? Of what a biblical church looks like. What are the marks of a biblical church? So far, we have learned that a biblical church is one that teaches expositionally. That a biblical church is, is one in where the, the preacher stands behind the word of God. And allows the word of God to speak for itself. We've learned that a biblical church is one that, that teaches biblical theology. Or a church that simply teaches what the Bible teaches. Now I've not given you a list of what those things are because there are a number of them. But it, I believe a biblical church is one that teaches the deity of Christ. I believe a, a biblical church is one that teaches the Trinity. I believe that a biblical church is, is one that teaches the, the inerrancy of Scripture. I would also believe that a biblical church is, is one that teaches that all things are for the glory of God. We could go on and on and on about what biblical theology is, and you'll be seeing what we believe biblical theology is more and more on our website as we add more things to the what we believe uh, portion of our website. Amen? We've also learned that a biblical church is one that, that sings, preaches, and displays the gospel. We've learned that a biblical church is one where true conversions are understood and where true conversions are taking place. Amen? Amen. Finally, we learned that a biblical church is one where evangelism, sharing the gospel, is priority. Amen. A church that does not evangelize, a church that is not passionate about sharing the gospel... I don't believe is a biblical church. I would even go as far as to say that I believe a true believer is one who is placed their faith in Christ alone and is also sharing the hope of their salvation with others. Yeah. Meaning that one who is not doing so is a questionable believer. That's right. Amen. Tonight we are going to continue on with at least two more marks of a biblical church. So, number six of the maybe 12 that we're doing so far, a biblical church is one that practices, believes church in church membership, church membership. I'm going to go slow tonight because I know we don't have that up there. <clears throat> one may ask, is church membership really that important? Why do I need to be a church member? Isn't it really just meaningless anyways? They're going to have you vote on different topics or they're going to want to show off the numbers that they have in their members list. But isn't it all just kind of meaningless? Isn't it all just kind of worthless? Why 
is church membership so important? And why do we here at RBC, why do we stress church membership so much? You and I live in pockets or little spots of communities, do we not? We live in our families. That's a small community. We live in our neighborhoods. That's a small community. We have workout teams. That's our little small community. But we are called to be also a part of another community. And this community is to hold our highest allegiance. I'm speaking, of course, about the community of the church. Someone may say, no, we are to be most allegiant to Christ, not the church. And yes, we are obviously supposed to be allegiant to Christ. But I would remind you that it was for Christ or it was for the church that Christ died. Amen. In Acts chapter nine, Saul, who later became Paul, was confronted by Christ himself as he was on the way to persecute Christians. But listen to what Christ says to Saul in Acts chapter nine, verse four, when he confronts him. He says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you messing with those guys? That's not what he says, is it? Saul, Saul, why are you messing with me? Why are you persecuting me? It was the believers, the followers of Christ, the church that was being attacked. But Christ identifies himself so closely with the church that he sees the church as an extension of himself. Therefore, Christ saw the attacks of Paul as an attack on himself. First Corinthians tells us that we are many parts, but we are of one body. The first century Christians believed what I just told you, and they practiced that we are all a part of, yes, this great body that is called the body of Christ. But we are all individually members of it. When I was younger, I had a, a bad view of church. I had a, a wrong view of church. I had an, an unbiblical view of church and church membership. I was the person who believed I don't need to go to church in order to have church. That I could have church anywhere. That wherever I am, as long as there are two or three gathered with me, Christ is there with me and it's in his name. This was a rebellious and also unbiblical view of church. Also unbiblical view of the two or three are gathered in my name, so on and so forth. It has nothing to do with that. I can also be re uh, remember being hounded by the pastor at that time to ask or asking me to sign a piece of paper that would make me a member of that church. And I thought, why sign a paper? Sign a paper? I'm already a member of the body. I don't need to sign your paper so that I can be a part of your church. I was one of those people who believed I could have church in a restaurant, a shopping mall or anywhere else. I had the idea, again, that as long as I'm sitting with another brother, then I'm having church. I also believed, as many do, that there is no place in Scripture that teaches that you should be a part of a local church. I say today with shame that, I, again, I was a rebellious, foolish young man. Because... The idea of the paper may not have been biblical, but the idea of church membership was completely biblical. 
Are we all the body of Christ? The body of Christ? Yes, we are. The Bible teaches in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 that we are all a part of the body of Christ. And I'll be the first to admit that there is no specific place in Scripture that says specifically, explicitly. Let me say it better like that. No place that commands you explicitly that you must become a member of the local body of Christ, the local church. However, there are many things taught and practiced by the church that are not explicitly taught in Scripture. Amen. But they are, however, implicitly taught in Scripture. Meaning this, where in Scripture do you find the Trinity, the word? You won't. But is it definitely implied throughout all of Scripture? Absolutely. Church membership is one of those doctrines that is implied all throughout Scripture. So let's begin with a simple, what is church membership? I want you, before we begin with the definition of what is church membership, to understand what is church. It has been discussed here, but let me just reemphasize that a church is not a building. Amen? The church is not a building. The church is not even necessarily the gathering of a crowd. That's important. Church is not just a building or it's not a building and it's not necessarily just the gathering of a crowd. The church is, here's your definition as you, if, if you're taking notes, it's a community. It's a body of repentant believers who have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. They have identified themselves with Christ and his church through baptism. And they have been committed, they have committed their lives to serve Christ And through the local church, they are gathering as committed believers. Did you get all that? Yes. Okay. If you didn't, then we'll get it to you later. Paul charged the elders in the church of Ephesus, which is also true for all elders and pastors, that we are to care for the church of God, which he obtained or which he purchased with his own blood. Acts 20, 28. The Bible teaches that every confessing believer should belong to a local church. They should love the church. They should serve the church. And they should also submit to the elders and pastors of that church. Just like a body has many members, so we Christians are supposed to be members of a body. We are sheep of a flock. We are bricks in a building. We are a part of a family. Amen? Amen? The Bible clearly calls us to be belong to a congregation to to belong to a group of people to live this life together and again we are called to both submit to leadership and also submit to the rest of the body we are building lives in this church and we are doing so together as a family according to hebrews chapter 13 church members listen should know who they are accountable to According to Hebrews 13, church members, we're going to get to this, church members should know who they are accountable to. And if they don't know who they're going to be accountable to, they also don't know how to live out Matthew chapter 18, which is talking about confessing our sins to one another and and causing or at least asking a brother to repent in sin of their sin. Leadership should also know who they are responsible for. So members need to know who they are accountable to and leaders need to know who they're responsible for. Amen. Amen. 
membership then, it confronts and it also opposes the idea of Christian individualism. Church membership opposes the idea of Christian individualism. We tend to think it's just our relationship with Christ. You have to understand that there is something bigger than just you going on here. There's also something bigger than just you and Jesus going on here. It's about not just you and not just you and Jesus. It's about us. It's about us together, growing together, admonishing each other in Christ. This goes right in the face of church hoppers. This flies right in the face of church avoiders. This flies right in the face of mere church attenders. They just go, but they're not really members. This also flies right in the face of uh, church shopping. Hopping, shopping, avoiding and attending. All of those fly right in the face of or fly counter to church membership. Anybody cold? Are you, could you turn that up a little bit? Thank you. I, if I'm cold, then you're cold. <clears throat> Listen to this about church membership. When you are a member of a church, you can say things that you can't say apart from being a member of a church. Meaning this, those who are committed to the body of Christ can obey the 59 one another's found in Scripture. Those who are not committed to a local body cannot say that because who are they loving? Who are they praying for? Who are they encouraging? No one, not if, they're not, not if they are not a member of a local church. So we can say things and we can obey things that is clearly taught in Scripture that those who are not members of a church cannot say and cannot obey. I'm so glad you're looking at me with those looks. That look is probably, where was that taught in Scripture? Well, well, let's look at some things. In the Old Testament, God made a clear distinction between his people and those who were not his people. Leviticus 13, 46, Numbers 5, 3, Deuteronomy 7, 3. Christ says that entering the kingdom of God means being bound to the church on earth. This would be the local church. Matthew 16, 16 through 19. Matthew 18, 17 through 19. But there's one example that I'd like to show you to explain these truths. First Corinthians chapter five. Are you there? First Corinthians chapter five. Verse number one. Say I got it when you got it. Good. It is actually reported that there are there is sexual immorality among you. Listen. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Here's what's not tolerated. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather ought you not rather to mourn? And here's the command. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Speaking to the church of Corinth, there is a man in the church who is sleeping with his father's wife. To the church of Corinth, for those of you who didn't catch that yet, speaking to the church of Corinth, there is a man in the church who is sleeping with his father's wife. And the church of Corinth has not corrected this sin. Instead, they are arrogant about it or they are boasting about it. What are they boasting about? That they're allowing it to happen, that they are being gracious toward this guy. Well, he's dealing with something. 
And so they're allowing this sin to continue. And Paul is outraged. And his command is kick that man out of the church. Is he being kicked out of the church of Ephesus? That was a question. Is he being kicked out of the church of Ephesus? No. Is he being kicked out of the church of Colossae? He's being asked or they're being asked to remove him from the church of Corinth. Removed actually means to excommunicate. It means to prohibit. Listen now from the Lord's table. They are excommunicated. They are not allowed to take communion. They are not allowed to be a part of the church. He says in verse 13 of that same chapter, purge, remove the evil person from among you. Remove. How can they be excommunicated if they were not first members? How can they be removed if they are not first members of the church? When we get to 2 Corinthians, it appears that this man was reprimanded. He was disciplined for his sin. That the church obeyed Paul's command and they excommunicated him. But there's another thing that's apparent in 2 Corinthians. It appears that this man did repent. And it also appears that the church of Corinth didn't forgive him. Because as we get to 2 Corinthians, they would not let the man back into church after he had repented. Paul caught word of this in 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 says this. This punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm him or to reaffirm your love for him. Listen to this. Who is the majority? The majority is a set of core members who are a part of the church. It is those who belong to the church. He says this punishment is by who? The majority. It's by the members. It's not by those who just randomly come. Because they have no say so in this matter. It's not also even by those who are unbelievers. Because they have no say so in this matter. Instead, it's by the majority of core believers who are a part of the church of Corinth. What are they doing? They are agreeing on the punishment of this man. And he's now asking the majority to agree on the reinstatement of this man. This only happens because there are members of the church there in Corinth. They were a part of that local church. They were submitted to the to the leadership and they were also committed to uh, performing church discipline. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter seven or chapter 13, verse seven. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you, the word of God, consider their way of life and imitate their faith. Let me ask you a question. Who is the writer of Hebrews speaking to when he says, remember Your leaders. Who are the leaders? Every leader in all of the world? Or the leaders of that specific church? The leaders of that specific church. Why? Because they are also the ones that they are supposed to not only submit to, but also imitate their life after. Are you going to live daily with John MacArthur? Don't call him your leader then. I ask you, who are your leaders? Oh, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Paul Washer. Call them up on the phone then when you have something to talk about. <laughs> Text them when you got something to talk about. Go meet up with them. No, you can't either. You can't, they won't call you up, Zay. They're not even going to know you. 
They don't know you. They're going to send you letters. They just want your money. They don't know you. So who are your leaders then? That's important. Because just as we are accountable to you, just as we are also responsible for your souls, as the Bible says, you are also accountable to us in our teaching. Amen. They are not your leaders. Thank God they are blessings to the body of Christ. But they will tell you, you can download our podcast, but this should not be your substitute for church. That's right. That's right. The Bible says in verse 17 of that same chapter, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Verse 17 says, because they are keeping watch over your soul as those who will give an account to God. And listen to the admonition because of that. They're keeping watch over your souls. They're going to be accountable for your souls. But listen to to what he also asked you to do in light of that. Listen, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to, the, of, to you. We are accountable. We're working hard to shepherd you. And in the process, don't make it difficult. Amen. Don't be a church troublemaker. Because you're going to exasperate some of the ministers. And they're going to say, oh, God, these members. I thank God I don't have people like that. <laughs> because you do not want an angry minister. You don't want a frustrated minister. You don't want one who does not want to be around you. Right? Right? We see in Ephesians that God has given the church elders. They are gifts of the church. They are not there, there just for us to download and to listen to, but they are there to be a part of our lives and to have an active function in our lives. Listen, if you never, if you cannot receive, you cannot sit down with your pastor and you cannot receive instruction, advice, or wisdom from them. But you'll only receive it from other churches and other pastors. Go to those other places then. Please go to those other places. If I sit across from you and I start telling you and you say, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. Just shut your mouth and go. Because if you can't receive from the pastors and leaders, who are you going to receive from? That's right. I receive from Sproul and Washer and Piper and your favorites. Well, praise God. Good for you. You go call them up. Go find Piper in Minnesota. (laughs) Go find MacArthur in Sun Valley. Let's see if you can get just a few minutes with them. So, and you know, the interesting thing is I have been more active in the past year with the sheep than I've ever been. Because I recognize this principle that I need to be actively involved in your lives. And I think it's made the church stronger uh, because of our being more active. So. Here are six ways in which the church can be impactful for the life of a believer. Number one, they're going to go quick. It makes an impact in your life because you are a committed lover of one another. You are a committed lover of one another. Not just any kind of love, but Christian love. Christian love, who does it look like? It looks like Christ. Of course, we are not Christ. We are are sinners, but we are striving to be holy. We are striving to be like Christ. And here's the interesting thing about this kind of Christian love. We are looking at individuals and asking them to help us, to hold us to a higher standard. Amazing. You don't do that with anybody else unless you're trying to lose weight or unless you're trying to exercise and say, dude, keep me accountable. This is the only place where you're in a church and you start to say to other people, hold me to high expectations. 
and love me enough to correct me when I fail. That's a blessing. Now, are we to do that with every single other believer in the world? Do you have a Christian uh, meter that you can detect whether or not someone is a Christian? No. You know the people in your church. You are are fellowshipping with them. You're aware of who they are. You have such a relationship with them that you can love them in such a way that you can say to them, hold me accountable to this. This is why we are commanded in Hebrews chapter 10 to gather regularly and to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We gather to encourage one another. And that's not just looking at each other and saying, you're awesome. It's encouraging each other correctively. Amen. Amen. As this word is being taught, you're being encouraged to do what? To grow in holiness. To grow in your understanding of, of what it is and what it means to be a Christian. We are to love one another, to be committed to one another. Number two. It's beneficial. It makes an impact because we are witnesses as a result of our love. As a result of our love, we are witnesses. The Bible says in John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. That what? When you have a love for one another, because of our love with one another, we will be a witness to the world. The local church is a place where we love one another. We come in. And the world that comes in to see sees people who love one another. And that is a witness for the glory of God. Now, if you come into a church and you don't want to do you don't want to have anything to do with one another, then that is a bad witness to Christ. But the world will know that we are his disciples when we love one another. Imagine you go out into your workplace and you invite people to your church and they come in and they see a community of people who love one another. What a great witness that is. Maybe they do not understand the gospel. Hopefully, by the grace of God, they will. But what they will see will be a testimony to how we live as believers, which is what we love one another. Amen. Amen. This is how we become witnesses to the world by showing them the radical change that's taken place in our lives as a result of the gospel being delivered to us. And as a result of us being changed by by the power of the Holy Spirit. Another impact is this, and this is going to be an interesting one, but we gain assurance of love and also assurance of salvation. What do I mean by that? When someone is repentant, when someone is believing in Christ, when someone is baptized, what do we do as fellow believers upon someone who is repenting of their sin, trusting in Christ, and also identifying themselves with Christ in the church? What do we do? We affirm their salvation. Do we not? That which was declared in heaven is being declared here on earth. Amen. Amen. Same thing with discipline. When someone is in sin, what do we do? We affirm together that person is in sin. So there is an assurance here of love. And there also is an assurance of salvation in an interesting kind of way. Paul said in Corinthians. Now, listen, that we are to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. But yet it is improper to question someone's faith. You can't tell anybody you're not saved. Because what's their automatic response? You don't know my heart. I don't know your heart, but I'm seeing your heart. And right now, it's just as depraved as Romans 1 through 3 says it is. But, yeah, you're saved. The fact is, many people... Believe that they are saved. MacArthur says. 
but they're just self-deceived. I remember my dad say, what's worse, someone fooling you or you fooling yourself? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And you know the rest. When we come and we are a part of a body, there is almost an affirmation of now, again, no one can declare it's not on us. Obviously, there's on Christ, but there is a sense in which there is an assurance through your repenting, through your faith, through your baptism, through your producing of fruit by the Holy Spirit that you are living the way a believer lives. And that's encouraging. Next. One of the benefits is we practice the nature of love. Here's what I mean by that. When we become members of a church, we are commanded to do things that believers do when they are a part of a church. Well, what are those things? I'm just going to rattle them off to you. John 13, 34, 1 Peter 4, 8, 1 John 3, 11, love one another. We do that as a church. Romans 14, 19, Ephesians 4, 12, build one another up. I'm going to go through these even faster. Mark 9.50, be at peace with one another. Galatians 5.13, serve one another. I know y'all looking at each other like, well, stop. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another. 1 Peter 3.8, be compassionate with one another. James 5.16, pray for one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and forgiving to one another. Romans 12.15, rejoice and weep with one another. Rejoice and weep with one another. They get a new car, praise God. They're getting sick. Oh, man, let's pray. That's right. That's right. Romans 15, 14, admonish one another. Philippians 2, 3, esteem others better than yourself. We should probably say that every Sunday. James 5, 16, confess your faults to one another. I've been so encouraged by the, the transparency of the men. When we meet for the race, these men are being honest. They're sharing their shortcomings. And what is it doing to the other men? It's causing them to look at themselves and say, yeah, me too. Now, we're not just a bunch of saps crying over each other, but you get the point. Ephesians 4, 2. Here's this one. Bear with one another. Put up with each other. We're a family. Put up with each other. Amen. First Thessalonians 5, 12. Watch it. 5, 12. Honor and esteem each other. Yes. Amen. Yes. Actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, sorry. This one actually honor and esteem the elders. It's me. Anyways. <laughs> this is all practiced within the context of church membership. Yes. If you're a Christian. You will not hesitate to inconvenience yourself for someone else. If you are a believer, you will not hesitate to inconvenience yourself for someone else. And if you won't, then you don't get it. If everything else is more important, if your, 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 your understanding of theology, I've got to go get more theology. I've got to hear more debates. And I, listen, since I've been reformed, especially the younger people, I know so many people that are so high on theology. They, they sit around, they talk about theology they sit around, they talk about all the knowledge that they have, but they won't and go. They won't go pick up somebody from Tent City, a little kid from Tent City and bring them to church and then take them out to lunch. 
I heard Mark Dever say the demons have really good theology, but they're not committed to it. People don't want to hear about how much you want, you know, praise God for how much, you know, praise God for all your knowledge. But what are you committing your life to? What does the Bible say? Knowledge. Puffs up. Right. Am I downgrading knowledge? Absolutely not. But if there is no practice of the knowledge, then you don't really have knowledge. A biblical church is one that practices church membership. Let's go on. Can I, can I do one more? Yes. Number seven. Thanks, mom. A biblical church, this is tied together. This is why I needed them to come together or do tonight. A biblical church is one that practices church discipline. This may seem like a weird mark to involve in the biblical marks of a church, but it is one that is clearly displayed in Scripture. The reason why many people will, will scoff at the idea of church discipline is because we have such an individualistic mentality that the very thought of someone correcting us The very thought of someone disciplining us causes us to reject the idea altogether. Who do you think you are to tell me? So let's start from the beginning. What is church discipline? Church discipline is connected to church membership. Again, they are are one. They go together. The church teaches. The church admonishes. But you allow the church to teach. You allow the church to admonish, but you won't allow the church to discipline. That's right. Interesting. What we mean by church discipline is essentially excommunication. It is excluding people from membership and also telling them that they are not welcome at the Lord's table unless they repent. We usually deal with issues of discipline through the teaching of God's word that tell us how we are to live. In light of what is taught in scripture, there will be times in which people will have to, to be corrected in light of the truth that they have received, heard and know. But many times people clearly hear what's being taught by the word of God and there is correction in their own lives. Amen. We call them to repentance when there is excommunication. We call them to renew their relationship with the Lord when there is excommunication. The punishment of excommunication, though, is meant to lead people to repentance and restoration with the Lord and also with the church. So excommunication is not meant to say you're not any longer a believer, we hate you, go away, is intended to really turn them over to Satan so that they realize what it is like outside of the church, outside of fellowship, outside of even yes. fellowship with Christ. Yes. yes. Without even taking of the Lord's table. And those of you guys who have been doing it, hopefully you've been getting a better understanding. Yes. Hopefully it's becoming more meaningful for you. Yes. And to realize when you are are not allowed to be at the Lord's table, you realize the impact that it has on your life. Can you imagine if you were not allowed to come to the Lord's table? If you were not allowed to be back here at church with the people that are your family. I'm looking back at, at Ellie back there and thinking, what would it be like if we would not have her here because she was not allowed to be here? That would, that would be hard on us and hard on her. Yes. That goes for all of us, I believe. We do not correct out of vengeance. Or we do not discipline out of vengeance. Amen? Amen. It is corrective discipline. It happens, again, all the time. 
when we preach and the word of God goes forth, there is discipline that comes from the word of God. That is called formative. Formative discipline. When we actually go to you, actually, no, it's corrective. Corrective. Sorry. Corrective. Got it? Corrective. When we go to you and actually tell you what needs to happen and discipline you, that is formative. I think I got those mixed up, but we'll get to that in a minute. So to excommunicate someone is a great expression of love. Here's why. You are showing care for that person. To allow someone to continue in their sin and not correct them is the height of callous indifference. But to go to someone and correct them is the height of true biblical Christian love. Because you see that they are headed toward a cliff that has a dead drop. And instead of letting them go that way and letting them fall down, you stop them as they are on their way to destruction. Where is this taught in the Bible? Matthew chapter 18. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Thank you, Nadine. (laughs) The rest of you, Matthew chapter 18. Verse 15. This is where this is clearly taught in Scripture. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That actually is known as corrective discipline. Who do you tell it to? Do you tell it to the, the, the universal body of Christ if someone is in sin? Do you go to, to whatever television station and put it online and tell everyone, hey, everybody who's a believer, this person's in sin? Or do you go to what's implied local church yes and do you deal with it amongst what's implied the local church yes of course you do this is known as sorry i've got both of them mixed up it is known as corrective discipline you could also find that in first corinthians chapter five second corinthians two second thessalonians chapter three now the formative discipline That's when we speak on a weekly basis. That's when we teach on a weekly basis, exhort one another in holiness and encourage you, build you up in your faith. You'll find this in Ephesians 4 and Philippians chapter 2. This is important because without church discipline, you will not grow in the way that God has intended you to grow. Meaning this, if there's not discipline coming from the pulpit and also Us going to you and correcting you if need be, because this is obviously not getting through to you. Then you're not going to grow the way you need to. That means that the way I teach will be a Joel Osteen approach in which nothing you do is wrong. You just have the wrong way of looking at it. You're not doing anything wrong. You're just looking at it the wrong way. God loves what you're doing. So you should too. Is there correction in that? Not necessarily. There's encouragement to keep doing what you're doing. Just have a better thought about the way you're doing it. 
Instead, we come and say, repent of your sins and turn to Christ, so on and so forth. Now you're being corrected or at least formatively disciplined. Amen. With discipline, we grow in the grace of God and produce fruit as his children. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 7. A biblical church is one that is serious about presenting the full counsel of God. All of the truths that come with his word. And as a result, they preach in formative and corrective ways. Now, what are the benefits of church discipline? Let's get to this and we'll finish up for tonight. Number one, it's good for the disciplined one. What are the benefits for the person being disciplined? It's good for them. If you recall in first Corinthians chapter five, the man who was having an affair with his wife, he was lost in his sin. He may have even thought he was doing something that was not a big deal. In Galatians, they may have thought it was no big deal that they were not trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. So out of love, what do we do? We discipline them so that they do not think that they are fine when they're not. Do you want someone letting you think or let's do it this way? How would you like it if you had something really big and green in your teeth? And you ran into 12 people that were supposed to be your friends. And nobody told you about that green thing in your teeth. And you went the whole day thinking you were cute. Until someone who you really don't even know comes up to you and told you, what's that in your teeth? And you rush to the restroom and find out this green monster in your mouth. What do you think about every single person who passed you up today, smiled at you and walked away? They don't care about you. So it is with those who are walking in sin. This big green sin on their life. And we don't say anything to them because we don't want to get involved. What do we think when someone finally has the guts to tell us what we're doing wrong? What do we think about every single person who didn't point it out to us? My friend Arturo, he has he has this um, this little glitch that he does when he boxes and he's been thinking he's been doing it right for three, four years. I went one day with him. I said, if you do that at me, I'd knock you out. I didn't even know. No one ever told me about that. Well, that's because I love you. Now no one's going to knock you out. Not with that punch, at least. So out of love, we go to them and we tell them their sin. You must understand that a church that is not church, church is not a feel good place. It's not a place for feel good messages, telling each other how great we think we are. That's not the place for church. We have been called by Christ and we must live in a way that is visibly different than the world. And we are not going to know that unless we are taught or corrected in that way. How number two, it benefits the the believers or it's good for the person corrected. It's also good for the believers. First Timothy, Paul says that when there is sin, it should be brought up publicly. Why? So that other believers can see the seriousness of that sin. When there is sin, we bring it up publicly so that those who are also in the congregation who are hearing know this is serious. We don't do that. And we need to. Three, it's healthy for the whole church, for the church as a whole. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that a little yeast works with a whole batch of dough. Meaning if we do not correct sin, it has the potential to infect and affect the whole church. If there is a, 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 a poison going on in the church, it must be stopped. And if it's not, it could affect the rest of the church. Infect and then affect the rest of the church. Next, it helps the church to be a witness both to the church and to the world. Amen. First, to the church. The church knows, as uh, our, uh, Arnold said to me the other day, that we run a tight ship here. Yes, we do. We're serious about the word of God. We're serious about sin. We're serious about keeping you accountable. If I don't see you somewhere, I may call you. Hey, what's going on? How come I don't see you? But we're serious here. You're in a small church. If you were in a thousand church, people of a thousand people, a church of a thousand people, you might get away with it. Not here. Amen. I know when you're sleeping. I know when you're awake. I know if you've been bad or good. No, it's fine. <laughs> it helps the witness of the church also to the world because what's the world's biggest gripe against the church? Hypocrites. They say one thing and they do another. So when we're serious about a confronting sin, yes. then at least the world knows, well, at least they don't play. Yes. They're going to have something to say anyways, but at least yes. we will know that we're, we're not playing around with sin. Amen. Yes. That we are encouraging one another, not perfectly, yes. but genuinely encouraging one another yes. to pursue Christ and his holiness. Yes. And we will become better witnesses to the church and also better witnesses to the world. Last but not least, what's the benefit? It gives God the glory. When we practice church discipline, it gives God the glory. We are supposed to reflect the glory of God. We do so imperfectly, but we do so sincerely. And we do so by the grace of God. We want to live this way. And who alone gets the glory? God does. And I'm all right with that. Soli Deo Gloria. Next time we get together, we're going to talk about making disciples. That one of the biblical marks of a church is one who makes disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.